Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Author and photographer Pete Souza was Barack Obama's official White House photographer for all eight years of Mr. Obama's presidency. Pete Souza returns to Atlanta on Friday as the keynote speaker for this year's Decatur Book Festival. Later in the program, we'll listen back to my most recent conversation with Sousa when he visited Atlanta for an earlier book tour. First, get an inside look into the contemporary performance world of core dance this month. Inside Out, the collection, is a screen dance project by Sue Schroeder, the artistic director of the ensemble. Throughout September, Core Dance is streaming a new body of work on their studio front windows on the Decatur Square, featuring the work of 2021 resident artists and guest artists at the National Gallery Prague. Sue Schroeder joins me now via Zoom to talk about the collaborative project. Sue, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. Why did you want to create the program Inside Out? Listeners may or may not know that we're located on the Decatur Square. And we have these beautiful storefront windows. So many years ago, once I finally got photos, large-scale photos up there, and then these photos are expensive to replace. So I was thinking, wow, we have all this great footage that belongs to CORE. I wonder if we could figure out how to project. So this was pre-pandemic that we were developing the protocols and the screens and how to projectors and timers and all of that. And we got that all up and running prior to the pandemic, and we put up our first film, which was, we call it Inside Out. It was bringing CORE's work from inside the studio out to the public, the public eye. And then we all know what happened shortly after that, COVID happened, and we were so grateful that we still had a way to present both our work and the work of other artists 
through this format of uh, large scale screens. They're very, they're really large. They're probably five by eight foot, and there's four of them that merge together or work separately. So uh, Inside Out has become now this many years later, I'd say we're probably three or four years into it, is our first offering of every season is to take some work from CORE's recent past and share it with our public um, that may or may not get, we do a lot of work internationally, by the way. And so this year, choosing to do one of our major projects from last season, which was this uh, Gallery Without Borders at the National Gallery of Prague felt really appropriate and super exciting to create from that project a specific creation for, for our window installation at CORE. Yeah. Would you talk about the origins of the collection and last season's touring project? Yes. Actually, we started the whole project pre-pandemic. This is going to be part of our nomenclature going going forward, I'm sure. Where, where, where were we with the pandemic? <laughs> so before the pandemic, I w the company at the time was scheduled to go to Prague. And I had designed the project with my partner in Prague, which is assessed as a choreographic center, to bring together uh, Czech choreographers. There were uh, five Czech choreographers, and I think we were six uh, from CORE. I had been in the installation, I'd spent a lot of time in the National Gallery, and I got to curate from the National Gallery which exhibition I wanted to work in and which pieces of art I wanted to focus on for this, this project. And I was invited by SESTA because, again, our, our listenership may not know this, but I have a long history of working in museums. And what's unique about what I do is I study and research the actual artwork, the visual artwork, the visual artist or the cur curatorial practice of the exhibition if it's multiple artists, and have been asked over the years, from the very beginning actually, to embody the work in the physical. So I don't, I don't respond, oh, I like this work and this is what it makes me feel, how it makes me feel like moving. Instead, you're going to see a physical manifestation of the, the two or three dimensional piece of art. And museums get super excited that this is a way for audiences to engage with the work in a, in a very interesting and deeper level, the kinesthetic. You can feel it. You can feel yourself in the work in a way. So that was what I was invited to share my practice with artists in Prague, choreographers, so that they could continue that work themselves. And for me, I always feel so very strongly that when I do this work, if and when I can, to make it an international exchange so that the artists from Atlanta and Core Dance could have that relationship with artists abroad. There's just, it's irreplaceable to their both personal and professional development. Uh, all of that before the pandemic, then the pandemic happened and I was invited to find another way to continue the work. So we developed it in two phases. And the first phase was we worked Everything happened on Zoom. We started the whole project on Zoom, and I ended up coaching the 11 artists. I had 12 Zoom meetings a week in their studios, working with them. And then the culmination of that first phase was a live stream from Prague and our studio indicator. 
and we of course we lost power in Prague so that was a very interesting moment but anyway we did it oh my. we did it and it was the first time the core dance artists had actually been physically together we had to like tape off the floor we had arrows which way you could go to stay away from each other everybody was masks it was it's really crazy and we did it and then as the pandemic wherever we are the pandemic it became travel became more possible and convening became more possible than we scheduled last October, which was to finally have the intended version, which was actually within the gallery, within the exhibition at the National Gallery. The National Gallery Prague is a grand museum. Tell us about some of the artworks the performers responded to in their choreographed pieces. I chose Czech artists for all, all of the work. The same year that I chose the work, I was on a project similar with Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, Arkansas for the women's right to vote anniversary. And so I was really interested in images of women in the work. So I could kind of study that, be studying that simultaneously. There were some women artists I chose and then the only non-Czech artists, but it had happened because it seemed inappropriate to not work it. There were two large-scale paintings on the wall, and in between was Rodin's martyr laying there on a pedestal. And I couldn't not address the fact that this large piece of sculpture was sitting between these two paintings. And so that was the one non-Czech and uh, French using Rodin's martyr uh, that was in the exhibition. Oh, wow. Now, you worked with videographer Amador Artiga and composer Christian Meyer on this project. Sue, what is it like for you as a choreographer creating these works for the camera rather than a live audience. It's fascinating, it's challenging, and it's curious. I did not know Amador Artiga until this project, and we met, and what we discussed was, yes, he would be capturing the work we were doing for, I don't know, in a way, a document. We, we always want a document of the work in full, but what we would ultimately be creating together was a new piece of art and really inspiring him to step into that, that he and I had become artistic collaborators as opposed to him documenting the nature of the work, which is, it has a different, different sensibility and a different feel. And we stayed in relation the whole shoot with most of the videographers and filmmakers I work with um, on their shoulder looking at, at images and shots, we're, we're discussing them as we go. And then there comes a point when we have that, that uh, comfort built up that they're free to go. And they, they come to me if there's something on their mind or, or in question. But generally, I do my best to respect the fact that they're a genius in their own area. And so go to it. And then after, it's a collaborative process through the editing. So you, you have the footage what's been captured and it's like, and then what do we do? 
And so we had a long conversation. I was back in Atlanta via Zoom and how do we want to approach this material? What, what do we do? And that's when we came up with the idea of the collection and then trying to fit, find a seamless, what could tie things together. And, and though in the gallery, each artist presented their work with uh, different sound scores, it felt important to unify this version of the, the actual project, the collection, the video installation with a unifying sound. The film is streamed nightly from dusk until midnight on the front studio windows of Core Dance. Why do you want people to be able to see the film on the studio windows, to view it this way? We have made it available online because much of our audience is not in Atlanta, it's all over, right? We're, we're national and international these days. So it is available uh, to view online. Again, it's a computer screen. Uh, seeing it large scale on the front of our building is compelling in another way. And I think we're learning, all of us in the art world and in many other parts of the, I guess, business community, COVID has changed things. And so allowing people the flexibility to come when they can. It feels accessible. It's free, so there's no price barrier. And so if I can bring the world to people, I love it. It's, it just gives great meaning to the work I'm doing out in the world. Core Dance, Artistic Director Sue Schroeder, Inside Out, the collection, screens every evening on the front studio windows of Core Dance in downtown Decatur through September 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll learn about a female protagonist named Vincent and have author Lisa Cross-Smith tell us about her novel Half-Blown Rose. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A woman named Vincent is at the center of Half-Blown Rose, the latest novel by Lisa Cross-Smith. 
The author joins us now via Zoom to tell us about the protagonist named after Van Gogh and her life-changing story. Lisa, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. When we meet Vincent, she is living in Paris, teaching a class at a modern art museum. What was the horrible situation Vincent experienced that made her want to flee home? Right. Horrible is a really good word for that. Um, the man she'd been married to for 25 years, his name was Killian. Um, he's a writer and he wrote a best-selling novel um, or slash autofiction. He doesn't quite want to say whether it's all true or not, but um, divulging secrets that he's kept from her their entire marriage. And so she reads it and decides that she's going to leave him, at least for now, and she doesn't want to see him for a year. So she leaves and goes to Paris. And I have to say that reading Vincent's account, being with Vincent as she learns what she does in her husband's so-called autobiographical novel, autofiction, is grueling to think that she knew someone for 25 years, they had two children, adored him, shared their life, and could not have known about this. And to learn about it, along with the rest of the reading public, it's staggering. How, how did that idea come to you? <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I wanted um, her to leave for a really horrible, specific reason. And I, I didn't want him to have cheated on her. And, and that way it wasn't that he had an affair. I just, I just really wanted to think like, what is something absolutely terrible <laughs> that someone could do to like, just ultimately really just betray her trust so much that she has to get as far as she can away from him. And, and I really, I can't say exactly where that idea came from, but it came to me pretty quickly. And I'm like, you know, I'm a writer too. So I'm like, wouldn't that be terrible? Like, wouldn't that just be awful? Like I'm laughing about it now because I've made it up and it's so terrible, but wouldn't it just be terrible? And she would have no choice really. <laughs> oh, wow. Killian Vincent's husband is Irish, a very successful writer and has literary acclaim along with his popular success. His fourth book is Half-Blown Rose. What's the significance of the title? Yeah, so I've, it's a book within a book, at least in the first section. We have, I've included snippets of Killian's work in there so the reader can actually see what was making her so angry. So Half Blown Rose is something that's really special to Vincent. She has a, a little tattoo on her shoulder that says Half Blown Rose. I took the title from Jane Eyre. It's been used before in a couple poems, but it was significant to me because of Jane Eyre, which is one of my favorite books. And in it, Charlotte Bronte writes, he gathered a half-blown rose, the first on the bush, and offered it to me. And I just thought it was so beautiful. The first time I was listening to it, the audiobook, um, my feet stopped when I came to that part because I just loved listening to 
the words half blown rose. So he's taken that phrase from her and decided to name his book that too, on top of also divulging the secrets in the book. So what I love so much about using the title that's just so beautiful to me, but also because of the meaning behind it, a half-blown rose in between a bud or a full-blown rose, something on the cusp of something else, something that's going to turn into something else. And I talk often about liminal spaces, spaces that aren't meant to last. And half-blown rose is not meant to stay half-blown. It's going to turn into something else. And so the entire book is really written around that theme in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of flowers in the book. I love flowers. You and I have talked about flowers before, but yeah, I just really loved the word. And it really, I love the words and it bloomed out from there for lack of a better way of saying it. Also, a lot of ideas started to come together just from that phrase. Killian's autofictional name for Vincent is Picasso, Pika for short. How does Killian's description of Pika reveal more to us, reveal more to the reader about the character of Vincent. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, and slash terrible since, you know, since we're talking about, you know, how horrible these things are for Vincent to experience. But she's sitting there and reading his version of her. She is called Picasso and his version of events. And, and so she's seeing the things that he thought that he hasn't always told her. So the moment he sees her for the very first time in the library, when they meet, when they're in college, how he felt about her then, how he felt as they grew from being friends to becoming lovers. So she is seeing the way he thought about her. And it's not, you know, it's all of that. It's all of his feelings. So it's not like it's all negative. It's not like it's all positive, but things he wouldn't necessarily have said um, out loud. There's a moment where I'm thinking he says something like she's smarter than he is um something that he wouldn't have ever said out loud to her but he's he's feels okay writing it down it's those little secrets that he wouldn't have necessarily wanted her to know but now he has no problem you know letting the whole world along with her know and it's an, an ultimate act of betrayal he does a lot you know, it's a lot of little betrayals in, in the book really can you talk about the biggest part of that betrayal that's revealed, or is that a spoiler? I've seen it in publicity for the book, even on the jacket. Yes, yes, I feel comfortable saying that, yeah. So the big, the biggest secret in there is that he may or may not had a child with a young woman back in Dublin when he was a teenager, with another teenager. So he doesn't want to fully commit to it in the book, but once Vincent reads that, of course, they have a discussion about that before she, before she decides to go to Paris. But yeah, a huge, huge secret is that he has, you know, potentially had another child and the child is back in Dublin with their Irish mother and he is now living in America and has been for, you know, since he was a teenager. So he kind of just forgot to tell Vincent that part. <laughs> forgot. <laughs> yeah, just a little forgot. Yeah. Vincent comes from privilege. Her parents are successful artists who own a beautiful apartment in Paris where she stays. Would you tell us more about Vincent's family? Yeah, I was so excited to write about a super privileged Black woman who really can spend her days doing whatever she wants. She makes jewelry. She has plenty of money. Um, Her parents have amassed a pretty 
large fortune. So she's really privileged and can do whatever she wants. I mentioned it a couple of times in the book that Vincent is a flaneuse, which is the female version of a flaneur, which is um, a person who can kind of just loaf around all day and walk around all day. She is super, super privileged. And that was just fun for me because what a dream, right? So I made her parents <laughs> artists and she's she's an artist and she's named after Van Gogh. And it, it just works like magic that her parents have this beautiful apartment in Paris that they're not using right now because they're traveling so much. So I was doing that to cushion her really so that she can spend all of her free time in Paris walking around eating chocolate bread and so that she can have a lot of time to, to spend with a young man that she that she meets and catches his eye but yeah I just really loved writing about black artists about the black upper class and and just a woman who really can hang out all day I needed her to hang out all day so I could get the things done in the book that I needed to get done well they may be financially well off but her parents are still artists at heart they're living in Rome. They don't like to stay put in one place too often. And they have unusual name choices for their children. Would you tell us about Vincent's brother and sister? Right. So there are three children and the oldest is Theo and and there's Vincent and there's Monet. So Vincent and Theo are named after (laughs) Vincent Van Gogh and Vincent Van Gogh's brother and then Monet, another artist. So yeah, so early on, whenever this young man in the book named Blue asked her about that, she says her siblings' names and he's like, wow, your parents love a theme. And she's like, yes, they do. So Lisa, you have Vincent fully embrace many of the positive received ideas we have about Paris. The beauty and romance of the city, the French men and women's sense of style, even smoking. There are so many Gaulois cigarettes in this book. I found myself worried that you, Lisa Cross-Smith, might be a smoker. No. Good. But it's <laughs> no, but... It... <laughs> yeah, it's clear you love writing about Paris and the Gaulois every other moment is a part of the backdrop. Yeah, it really fit my idea of Paris. When I wrote the book, we had just returned and it was it's a really smoky city. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I use that, but I really do use that positively. I'm not, not, not at all, you know, I'm brushing away the the health terrors of smoking, but in terms of Parisians taking their time to sit outside and drink coffee and smoke a cigarette in the middle of the day, that part of it is inspiring that they're taking the time for themselves. Although obviously we could make healthier choices, but in my book, I don't have to worry about that. They can smoke as much as much as There they you want. go. <laughs> what does this setting, Paris, enable Vincent to discover about herself? That's a beautiful question. And I really thought and do think so much about her indulging without guilt. Paris makes it easier for her to be so far away, completely immersed in another city and all new friends and different music and different food. And and she's seeing everything differently now. And so that alone really helps her forget what, you know, 
a lot of the time or as much as she wants it to as much as she can forget what Killian has done so giving her that distance and putting her in this beautiful spot where she's trying to figure out what she wants to do with the rest of her life as a woman in her 40s who begins an affair with a young man who's the same age as her son he's in his 20s but so she really does stretch out and enjoy herself all the aspects of it really Good and bad, I want to say, in indulging herself with food and like you mentioned, with cigarettes and sex and letting herself do that without guilt, which is what I want to say again. Um, she really kind of pushes that stuff aside and is like, let me see how it makes me feel when I do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll circle back to those feelings later. <laughs> if you are just joining us, I'm Lois Reitz's my guest today is the author Lisa Cross-Smith, and we've been discussing her new book, Half-Blown Rose. Let's talk about Lou, the young man you mentioned. Theirs is a very sexy relationship, I guess. Voracious might be one way to describe it. What impact does Lou's attraction have on Vincent? Well, really, at first, she is rejecting it as much as possible. So she goes there and she goes to Paris in the summer. And it's not until October that they she actually even goes out for coffee with him with someone else along. And it's not until October until he comes back to her apartment. So she really rejects it. It's something she feels instantly from the moment she sees him in his little short shorts in her classroom. But but she is really rejecting it. She's not there to have an affair. She's She is still married. She is still trying to figure out what's going on. She doesn't need a man. She's very independent. She's not looking for that in any way. But there it is. So now what, right? So she really lets that bloom when we're talking about the half-blown rose and blooming. It just slowly blooms. The relationship slowly blooms. She's so against it at first that she's like, look, don't even call me Vincent call me Miss Wilde her name is Vincent Wilde and, and she's like I don't want you being this close to me or attempting to be this close to me but he kind of weasels his way into her apartment because she's having a dinner party her she and her friends have rotating dinner parties and he says Jeffin I'm hungry <laughs> so she's like okay I'll feed you I don't want you going hungry and then there are things I don't want to spoil people but then there are things that force them into this more intense intimacy when they're there at her apartment but so it, it really does start she really is trying to resist it it just doesn't work and then once she starts leaning into it that's when we have the stuff without guilt at first she really does have it she does have some hesitation but his shorts get shorter. He's very handsome. His hair is very pretty. He really, really likes her. And she just finds all of that irresistible right now. And reassuring, reaffirming. Mm -hmm. oh, 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 absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Although Killian, her husband, still loves and adores her. One wonders why he hadn't thought that the book that <laughs> telling her about the book and what it contained was a part of that love but it's complicated I, I agree I do think it's complicated and I and I believe that the reader will find it's complicated too because um, we talk often about likable and unlikable characters in fiction and and while I can totally hear someone who thinks that Killian is unlikable and what he's chosen to do i mean you know it was nasty it was it was wrong he was 100 wrong but um she does love him he is a person she does know him she does feel like she knows him she feels like obviously he's you know this, this shadow of this huge lie he's kept from her their whole relationship but 
she does have her moments where she loves him. And so he sends flowers to her every Saturday and Killian's he's an interruption to her life over there. She has told him, do not come over here and try to find me. So we have that done. Do not try to, you know, surprise me that I don't find that romantic, but he is texting. He is calling. He is sending flowers, not harassing her, but in a very gentle way that he knows that she will always sort of leave the door open for him. So through the course of the book, we're trying to see what she's going to decide. But in the first section, when I've included snippets of his book, his half blown rose in that section, it's always occurring at points where it's an interruption. So right when she's feeling like things are revving up with, with her relationship with Lou, well, you know, here's another section from Killian or here's a text from Killian or Killian has sent flowers. So he is interrupting what she is trying to do over there. And, and I can understand a reader feeling like, you know, what a jerk, we hate him, but also he is a real person too. And as you read his version of Half Blown Rose, I feel like you can feel for him too. He was a teenager. You know, what is he supposed to do if his parents are snatching him away from Dublin and bringing him to California? What is he supposed to do? You know, he was a child. Your book brings out, they are both loving, devoted parents with good relationships with their kids, and Killian has not written anything unkind. Everything he has addressed about their children in his half-blown rose is loving. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Would you talk about the assignments Vincent gives her students? Yeah, so Vincent teaches a couple classes at the Modern Art Museum. She teaches journaling and she teaches another class on creativity and memory and then a, a jewelry making class. And, and so I've included a, a lot of the prompts from her class for her color class and her memories class. And for the memories part in, in terms of creativity, the idea of some of those exercises are things that I actually did in my theater class where we would try to remember Every memory we had, it was really an assignment just to write down any memory. It could be the most basic thing, like one day you got a sandwich and it was good, or it could be some huge, you know, happy memory or some tragic memory. And so, so I've included the prompts in there where people are just talking about colors, the colors they love, the colors they see on their walk to class or memories, any memories they have. And then they mine those memories and they mine those um, color prompts to um, help with their own so if they're working in their journal or they're working on painting something and so I include those in the book and I also include some of her students responses to those because inside of the book I have snippets of Killian's journal I also have soundtracks and menus and prompts from her classes so I've tried to include a lot of different things like that to make the book even more immersive so that the reader can actually hear and smell and join her classes um, and taste the food and see the sights that she's seeing so I really wanted it to be as immersive an experience as I could yeah and what a, a lovely way to get to know someone, as Tully, a character, tells Vincent. What a lovely way to get to know someone by listening to their color connections and memories. Color and the importance of color is a uh, recurring theme in your writing, Lisa. And the vivid colors of flowers and the paintings we see, of course, Van Gogh himself dominate this book especially. I know 
with my first encounter with synesthesia, with the word, was through music, through a composer who would hear color, as he put it, with his music. And then when I was talking about this, my daughter was very young, and she told me she associated colors with words. Oh, wow, yeah. Does color have that strong connection with words, with, you know, the verbal un- understanding or your verbal processing? And not Maybe not in such a strong way all the time, but I definitely have my moments and I can't divorce color from my creative writing, you know, from my creative writing process. So in a way I do, <laughs> that would be my short answer. Yeah. I, I definitely will assign colors to people or characters in my book. And I, I do that quite often. And it was really easy for me to have Vincent dig into color. And so when you mentioned Tully, which is the character um, of Killian's son, Tully, who, um, and this also is not a huge spoiler, but um, Vincent starts emailing Tully and they begin a a relationship over email and and that's the way she kind of gets in with him she explains that she teaches a class on on color and she just kind of asks him his color memories and they just sort of talk and their relationship really blooms from there too but you're right it is you know you can ask someone a question like that and if they're a person who is open to answering a question like that you can really learn a lot about them and it's really beautiful to listen and and to meet people there with their own experiences Lisa, Half-Blown Rose contains love letters from you to Paris, to visual art, to film, to music. And during a trip to England within the book, a love letter to the literature of the Brontes and Jane Austen. Would you talk about writing this section of the book? Yeah, I just love them. They're my favorites. The Brontes and Jane Austen are just some of my favorite women who have ever lived and they inspire me really um, every day. I actually took that trip on purpose to go um, see where Jane Austen lived and worked. And and then I'm pl- I was planning on going to the Bronte Parsonage before COVID. So I'm hoping to get there soon. But yeah, that was also just a really easy thing for me. I just, you know, being so inspired by Jane Eyre to title it Half Blown Rose and just to explore those it's super, super intense romantic relationships in their work really inspired me with, you know, Catherine Heathcliff and Lizzie Bennett and Mr. Darcy. I just really wanted to explore the same things they did, but in a different way, just this intense, passionate love and this idea of women really wanting to start out on their own and, and find out who they really are. And these really complicated, strong, intelligent women that they write over and over again. I'm just always inspired by them. I just love them. They're my favorites. Absolutely. Mm. Half-Blown Rose has three parts. The first is titled Vincent and Killian. Part two is Vincent and Lou, or Vincent et Lou. Part three is a woman called Vincent. How has she emerged as the sole occupant of that title? 
Yeah, when I started it out, like I was mentioning before, it really was like a, the first section is a lot of interruptions from Killian. She's still trying to get her footing in, in Paris. She's over there, but, you know, she's always thinking about that book. She's always thinking about Killian. And then we have the second section where she's really leaning into her feelings for Lou. And, and, and this something that she thought could be like a just a little crush or just a little fling is blooming into something else. So what does that look like? But then at the end, it really is about a woman called Vincent. It's what the book is about. It's her story. It's her version of events. It's her half-blown rose. Killian has written his half-blown rose and this is hers. And so that was really important for me to have her take all that back. It's not about a man. It's not about anyone else. It's about her. It's about her and her choices. And now she is finally going to do that. She has raised her children. She either is or isn't going to stay in this marriage with Killian. And she is going to be okay, regardless of what decision she ends up making or what else happens to her, she can handle it. And she really is a woman called Vincent. He, it's, it's a, a specific phrase that Lou says to her early on. He's like, wow, your name is Vincent, Vincent, a woman called Vincent. But that's what she, that's who she is. She is a woman called Vincent. And this is her story. Although she does have a like, you know, a wild cast of characters that make their, make an entrance and exit. But this is her book. This is her story. Author Lisa Croft-Smith from our conversation in June. More information about her novel Half-Blown Rose is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Former presidential photographer Pete Souza is returning to Atlanta on Friday as the keynote speaker for this year's Decatur Book Festival. Coming up, we'll listen back to my most recent conversation with Sousa. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Author and photographer Pete Souza was Barack Obama's official White House photographer for all eight years of Mr. Obama's presidency. Souza's newest book is The West Wing and Beyond, what I saw inside the presidency. Sousa will be in Atlanta this Friday, September 30th, as keynote speaker for the Decatur Book Festival. In honor of his upcoming visit, let's listen back to my 2018 conversation with Pete Sousa. Here, he recounts when then Senator Obama asked him to join his White House team. It was not totally a surprise. Um, I mean, I knew that I was in the running for the job, and the conversation was pretty short. It was, you know, do you want to do this? And, the re you know, my response was I need to have access to everything to, you know, to truly document your presidency for history. That was about it. Wow. So there was no, oh, I'm deeply moved and um, pat on the back and 
big hug kind oh, of Oh, sure. I mean, the the first day on the job was like a couple of weeks before the inauguration. It was the, it was the first time that I saw him in person since accepting the job. And he was about to make a big personnel announcement. Uh, and I was waiting backstage with the person that was uh, being nominated for this position. And when, when Senate, President-elect Obama walked in, he hugged me, not the person that he was oh, about I to Oh, I love nominate. it. Oh, that's yeah. great. How did your relationship with him change once he became president, or did it change? Well, it began as a uh, strictly as a professional relationship because when I was working for the Chicago Tribune, and I wasn't working for him, uh, but I was, but I was documenting his days in the Senate uh, quite a bit. So I got to know him on a very professional basis. One of the things that happens when you are the chief White House photographer, at least for this particular president. I was with him all day long, every day. I saw him in all different compartments of his life. I was in the situation room with him. I was with his family sometimes. I was at all his social events. So I knew uh, everything that he was experiencing. And because of that, it just strengthened our relationship because he knew I was the only one that knew you know, how he was doing, his moods and um, when things had gone not so good and when things were, were, were going good. Wow. You were really the fly on the wall who was actually visible in human form. Yeah. You could put it that way. And you got to spend a lot of time, obviously, behind the scenes with the president and his staff. What are some of your favorite stories or more lighthearted memories about working behind the scenes with President Obama. It was um, just an amazing opportunity and, and, and privilege to have that job. I, I was there to, to visually make a record of his administration. But as I said, because um, we became close personally, uh, th there would be times when we would um, exchange words, I would usually leave it to him to say something first because I didn't want to, you know, be in his head when he was uh, in, in the middle of a difficult day. But I, I, I do remember one time, uh, it was the, the night that Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, which was, you know, his signature piece of legislation, I think, during, during the eight years. And they had just watched the vote uh, with a crowd of staff, people in the Roosevelt Room. And, and after the vote was passed, he walked into the Oval Office. I, I walked back with him. And he was going to call a few people to thank them. And he turned to me and he said, you know, the bad days really aren't as bad as you think they are. And the good days aren't really as good as you think they are. And I said back to him, I said, yeah, but this is a pretty damn good day. <laughs> and sure. he kind of repeated those words. What a moment. I think the Valentine's Day photo with Mrs. Obama is amazing. And all the family photos. I forgot how little 
Sasha was in the early days, that picture of her sitting on his lap, on her father's lap and Malia, and just the warmth of the family, that wasn't posed, was it? No, and the the one thing I like to tell people is that, uh, you know, this is somebody that was the busiest man on the planet, had so many things going on in his, in his life and his brain in terms of dealing with the presidency. But w- when he was with his girls, he was all in with them, mm-hmm. even if it was— even if he only had 10 minutes with them, when he was with them, it, he was all in. There was, he wasn't looking at his BlackBerry or there wasn't an aide hovering nearby. It was uh, just him being a dad for those five or 10 minutes or what, you know, whatever, how much time he was spending with them. Did you have to ask Bo to pose in the desk chair or <laughs> did he often sit at the president's desk that way? Uh, that, that, was, that was a rare occurrence. <laughs> Bo, Bo and I, we shared a, uh, a brotherhood because we're, 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 we're both of Portuguese descent, as I like to tell people. Because he's, right. he's a Portuguese water dog and my... Uh, grandparents are from uh, the Azores, uh, which are Portuguese islands. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people that Bo and I had like sort of a brotherhood thing. <laughs> and no one is allergic to you either. No. Right? <laughs> Matter of fact, in my uh, presentations, I show a, a, a little iPhone video of uh, the routine I had with Bo in the morning where I would chase Bo around the cabinet room table before the president came to work. We'd probably do about 10 or 20 laps. Pete, there have been many popular TV shows that focused on the presidency, such as The West Wing, House of Cards, Scandal, and Veep. Does it bother you that not one of those shows ever focused on the chief photographer. Do you think this is an untapped character idea? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure that there's characters on those shows that you know that depict uh, a member of the White House staff that had a similar relationship that that I had with President Obama. It just happens not to be a photographer. <laughs> okay. And I, I'd be worried about it because I'd worry about how they would portray uh, me or any White House photographer. Because I, like, I, I took the job seriously. I mean, I was truly trying to document everything he was doing for, for history. And oftentimes when they depict a news photographer in some movie, they sort of get it, all, they sort of get it wrong. It's not quite right. And so I would, I would, I would hope that if, if they ever somebody ever did make uh, a character in a show about the White House where there's a character playing a White House photographer that they, you know, hire me as a technical advisor or something so I could tell them <laughs> how, how we uh, did our job. Author and photographer Pete Souza from our December 2018 conversation. Sousa will be the keynote speaker for the Decatur Book Festival this Friday, September 30th. And more information is on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. The annual March on Washington Film Festival kicks off Wednesday and runs through October 2nd. The event was founded in 2013 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The film festival serves as a platform for social change and to celebrate the untold stories of icons as well as unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. The hope is to inspire a renewed passion for activism through storytelling and art. More than 20 films and emerging filmmaker shorts will be available to stream virtually. More information about the screenings is on their website, marchonwashingtonfilmfestival.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the spooky host with the most, Professor Morte shares details on the Plaza Silver Scream Spook Show. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.